This program deals with themes of an adult nature and is intended for a mature audience. The very word secrecy is repugnant in a free and open society. And we are, as a people, inherently and historically opposed to secret societies, to secret oaths, and to secret proceedings. Our differences worldwide would vanish if we were facing an alien threat from outside of this world. We must guard against the military-industrial complex. UFOs, paranormal phenomena, and deep analysis of current world events. From somewhere in the desert, between Area 51 and Roswell, blasting across the planet, the Manticore Network proudly presents Fairy Tales. Because the truth will set you free. Headline edition, July 8, 1947. The Army Air Forces has announced that a flying disc has been found and is now in the possession of the Army. I'm as bad as hell, and I'm not going to take this anymore! The power they took from the people will return to the people. The Matrix is everywhere. It is all around us. It is the world that has been pulled over your eyes to blind you from the truth. Shall I tell you what I find beautiful about you? You are in charge of every best when things are worse. Sooner or later, though, you always have to wake up. Be skeptical, but don't close your mind. Greetings to everyone around the world, and we're welcome to another edition of Veritas at VeritasRadio.com. I'm your host, Mel Fabregas, and I sincerely thank you for joining me once again. And if this is your first time, please make yourself at home. I want to thank you, Veritas member, for making this program possible. Please subscribe at VeritasRadio.com to listen to both segments of tonight's interview and all of our material. Tonight's special guest is independent thinker, philosopher, and visionary, Jason Verbelli. You may have seen Jason on Veritas TV a few weeks ago. And by popular demand, we decided to invite him on for a full interview. I recently met Jason and was very impressed, not only with his wisdom, but also with his willingness to learn from everyone. He is proud of his findings and research, but he's humble enough to know that in order to get to the truth, you must explore even areas no one wants to because they always expect someone else to do the work. We'll discuss a plethora of topics that I'm sure you will enjoy. Jason Verbelli will be with us shortly. And visit the Veritas store for MMS and our futuristic metal-cased USB drives with all of our seasons and bonus material. And just a quick note to mention something about MMS. You know by now that I don't represent or endorse any product unless I try them. Well, just a quick recent story about MMS. My wife and daughter were both sick this week. Since I lived with them, I also felt the flu-like symptoms coming. I immediately used what I call Mel's 7-3 protocol. Seven drops of MMS three times. First the night when I started feeling sick. By the next morning, I felt fine. But I took it again in the morning and then again in the evening. So evening, morning, and evening again. Seven drops. The last time was last night. And as of tonight, I feel 100% fine. I can't talk too much about these quote-unquote water purification drops, but for more information, go to the Veritas store. It's better to have it and not need it than need it and not have it. And it's very inexpensive. And to get in touch with us for technical support, with suggestions, media inquiries, or if you want to be a guest or are a whistleblower, there's a link for you by clicking on the contact button of our website at veritasradio.com. And now, get ready to meet someone who from a very young age questioned the science done in school and the lack of interest 
in the primordial questions. Why did he think that magnets were important as a child? Why did he seek the meaning of ancient hieroglyphs? Why is academia confining people into specialized areas? Are most new discoveries are made by those outside of those boundaries? What's the status of Professor John Searle's invention? Who were Walter Russell and Ed Lee's Conan? Why is structured water so important? And how can we shatter the paradigm of energy dependency for the entire world and reboot this planet to its original paradisical origins with abundance for every living being? For this and much more, Jason Verbelli is coming up next. This is Mel Fabregas, and you're listening to Veritas. This is Professor John Searle, and you are listening to Veritas. Jason Verbelli is an independent thinker, philosopher, and visionary, who many consider a wise man. His focus is the work of Walter Russell, Professor John Searle's technology, and similarities between science and spirituality. There's no doubt he's on par with a number of historical and current figures who have paved the way with unconventional perspectives in the sciences. Jason's uplifting ideology is unique, and for the past six years, he has dedicated himself to presenting information not mentioned anywhere in mainstream news or even many libraries. He's a walking archive of valuable information. The technology Jason promotes could provide humanity with a number of reliable solutions to a huge range of environmental and health issues we face today. And directly from the San Francisco Bay Area, I'm privileged to have my friend Jason Verbelli coming to Veritas. Hello, Jason, and welcome. How are you? I'm doing very well, Mel. Thank you for having me. Uh, I've been very much looking forward to having our conversation and to give the listeners an opportunity to hear some different perspectives so this should be uh should be fun indeed i met jason at the east city ranch every year i go to the east city ranch and i meet great people so this year was not an exception uh, jason and i had hours of, of great conversation and and when he made his uh, presentation which by the way it's on our website for members if you go to very test tv you can watch it there you blew everybody out of the water just because you're so young i have to say yet you have been self-educated in so many ways because this is something you and I discussed. A lot of people pay attention to titles, pay attention to, oh, that person has a PhD. But once you're within those boundaries, Jason, it seems that you can only focus on one thing and people don't ask you about anything else because the presumption is that you don't know anything else. But you seem to step out those boundaries and found the truth wherever it is. Just give us a little bit of a background of yourself and what motivated you to start looking into all these areas? Wow. Well, again, my name is Jason Verbelli to all the listeners. And ever since a little kid, I was interested in alternative thinking and magnets, uh, playing with magnets. And nobody really talked to me about magnets in school. So naturally, I uh, wanted to study things that people didn't really want to talk about my whole life. So I was in search of 
what magnets are and how do they work and just their mystery and seeing the attitudes of other people uh, with what I considered a sacred thing. I remember playing with these magnets and, and moving them from a distance and, and looking up at people when I was really, really young and saying, look at this, isn't this amazing? Like, can't you, can't you see the significance? Hmm. And a lot of the people would just say, oh, yeah, that's, that's great. That's just magnets. And that really, uh, it turned me off to, to that type of attitude. Like, what do you mean just magnets? I hold these things in really high regards. They're pretty mysterious, and throughout the ages, people have seemed to think that they were pretty important. So for people to just be dismissive of something that I just held in high regard was just you know, disheartening. So I was searching for people who could help me uh, understand these crazy things that other people might not really see the significance of, but to me, they're everything. So my search began very young, trying to just ask questions like, you know, what is a black hole or, you know, what is uh, space and, and gravity and, and light? Just asking questions as a kid. And instead of answering my questions, uh, the teachers would say, you know, Jason, that is a great question. Isn't that a great question, class? <laughs> now, who else has a question? <laughs> and they just dismiss it. They'd never really answer either because they, they didn't know, they didn't want to tackle it or I don't know what. But did you, did you go to my school? Because that, that was more or less the same response I used to get. Really? So it wasn't just me. No. And yeah. it's interesting that you mentioned magnets because as a, as a kid, and maybe you played with them too. I had some Tonka trucks, you know, those metal ones back in, in, in the sixties and seventies. And for some reason I found some magnets at home. And I placed one behind one of the trucks, and I always played to push the truck with my magnet without touching it. And I always was fascinated with that. And I thought, wow, if I can push this with this little magnet, imagine what a huge magnet could do. I mean, talk about inverse gravity. Talk about energy of moving parts forever uh, without any kind of, uh, um, how do you call it, uh, any kind of friction, frictionless, exactly. Man, I mean, there is just so much that interested me as a kid, uh, like hieroglyphics. I saw a lot of significance in hieroglyphics, and uh, uh, I interpreted the symbols differently. I saw well, light bulbs. I saw uh, schematics and diagrams and, and just different different things, whereas people in regular schools would see a language or strictly go by, you know, loaves of bread to a sun god. And I just wasn't, wasn't cutting it for me. Just wasn't buying it. So trying to search for all of these things and, and then happening to see some strange phenomenon in the sky that were not helicopters, were not planes. They were not anything that I had previously seen. Um, I actually got to meet with uh, Dr. Stephen Greer of the Disclosure Project and C-SETI, and I met, him, uh, met with him in Mount Shasta in 2008. Had one of the most significant experiences of my life with 44 other people uh, in the woods at Mount Shasta and saw this very large craft uh, just hovering in the woods a few miles line sight from where we were. And I knew that that wasn't really running on gasoline intuitively. It uh, just didn't really seem like it had oil to it. Maybe you might be using magnets or some form of uh, uh, converting heat to electricity or who knows what. All I know is I wanted one because I'm seeing these things floating around. How do I explain it? Everything that I had previously been taught in school never addressed what I am seeing right now. So something is wrong with the way that we are being taught or just we're not acknowledging certain things that uh, that might seem esoteric or might seem um, hokey to some people. But to others who might have experienced some strange stuff, uh, we want some explanations. And I'm thinking that in the work of all these people that I've been studying, like Walter Russell or Professor John Searle or Ed Leed Skalman, these different perspectives might be able to explain the dynamics of free energy 
and put things in context so it's not all woo-woo and it's not uh, not something beyond our reach. So it can be something tangible, explainable, and and experiment with it, duplicate it, and be able to explain it in a lab in professional settings. So I'm about trying to find information that isn't readily accepted, see the history and root of how it was suppressed versus mainstream theory and the root of how mainstream theories come to be. And just try to acknowledge these different perspectives and brilliant minds. Uh, and just, uh, it's just a matter of taking the time, having the passion, and giving consideration to people who uh, aren't, aren't acknowledged by, uh, by many professionals in the mainstream community. But at the same time, there are many professionals, PhD-holding professionals, uh, of all fields – all sorts of walks of life that do agree with these alternative perspectives. But all we hear about are really one-sided views and, and logical fallacies and circular thinking or tautology. So it's, if we, can, we can go back to the root of how theories came to be. We might see that uh, some of them might have been misconceived or have illusions of observation. And that's the basis of of Walter Russell's work uh, back in the time of Nikola Tesla was trying to uh, address these so-called unexplainable phenomenon in different contexts and a new concept of the universe. And that is very important. Who was uh, Walter Russell? Because I know he's, he's probably your main inspiration, isn't he? Yes, absolutely. Um, man, when I first came upon the work of Walter Russell, it was only like two years ago. I had been studying all these things about the speed of light and trying to find out what a black hole is and, and just seeking out these really tough questions. And then I came upon the work of Walter Russell and his, his perspectives just blew everything I knew out of the water. And it all started with his one quote that light doesn't travel. And the implications of that quote and that meaning, like, really struck me uh, when I first heard that. Light doesn't travel. Hmm. Sort of puts a damper on Einstein's theories of the speed of light. Yeah. And, and all of this and that. But Walter Russell's perspective was that light is the absence of all motion. That it's unity. It's stillness. It is the one. Um it has a religious context to it, but it's more of a more of a spiritual science. It's not one or the other. It, Walter Russell wasn't afraid to tackle religious ideas in a scientific context, and that itself is really important. Um, when Walter Russell was eight years old, he left formal education to help work and support his his mom and his, and his family. Uh, at a very young age, he would go into the wilderness at days at a time and meditate. Now, things that kids just don't really take it upon themselves to do. Now, go out in the woods and meditate for days at a time and then come back unscathed and looking healthy. Uh so he had some connection to nature or to the world around him that other people didn't seem to have at his age. Uh, this man was a professional horseback rider, professional ice skater, a sculptor, an architect, uh, physics. He was a, given an honorary doctorate degree. Uh, unbelievable. This man established the University of Science and Philosophy – um, which he and his wife, Leo Russell, taught all these different perspectives uh, throughout the 50s and, and 60s uh, until Russell refolded or passed away. And his perspectives were just uh, something to be researched by universities uh, all around the world. Walter Russell met with kings, with presidents, with very prestigious people, was good friends with Mark Twain and Nikola Tesla. 
it's it's said that Nikola Tesla told Walter Russell to lock away many of his ideas for the next thousand years until humanity was ready. And he did in the Smithsonian. He locked all of his ideas away, locked all of his writings and his in uh, his coils. And and uh, it wasn't. It wasn't until he met his wife that she talked him into getting all that out. And if it wasn't for his wife, uh, Leo Russell, we wouldn't be discussing uh, uh, who this man is. So if, if you want to take a look at some of his works, I encourage some of the listeners to visit uh, feandft.com, free energy and free thinking. Just click through the links available, look at the different perspectives, uh, and it's uh, it addresses a lot of stuff. So many considered uh, Walter Russell as the Leonardo da Vinci of the 20th century. So if, if Nikola Tesla admired him and they were good friends, so why shouldn't we give him some consideration too? If a lot of people admire Tesla, then let's take a look at this guy as well. Was uh, some of Russell's work sequestered just like Tesla? Uh, yes, I would imagine so. Um Man, it's so voluminous. It's hard to tell what has been sequestered and what is just not just understood. There, the man wrote like 30 books. Um, he didn't really have any classic schooling. And like Victor Schauberger, uh, nature was his teacher. But his works are not really accepted by mainstream because they're so contradictory to to math and equations and theories that might not have been developed around sound uh, concepts. So we have a bunch of equations talking about things that are far removed from reality. Like Nikola Tesla said, uh, scientists, uh, today's scientists uh, wander through equation after equation uh, without experimenting and they, you know, build a structure that has no relation to reality. So, Looking at this man's work has really changed my life and and a lot of people that I know that I have helped introduce to his work. See, this is what you're doing. You're trying to get away from the circle of finding the answer to a problem, and you're trying to put them in practical terms. And, and, and as I get to know you, Jason, and, and watching your presentations and reading about your work— I see that there's some similarities between you and I in that we may start, you started with magnets. I also experimented with magnets, not to the extent that, that you have. But, you know, we both have, have a, a, an affinity that we both want answers as to, you know, the extraterrestrial question, UFOs, and so on. But once you start getting, walking on that path, I don't know if this happened to you, but you open one door. And then 10 more doors open behind it that you thought were somewhat unrelated to this. I know you, for example, you talk about the Freemasons. Now, people demonize the, the Freemasons today, but the, if you look at the uh, the pyramids and some of the cathedrals and so on, you see that this was apparent everywhere around the world for thousands of years, almost as if it was, you know, a universal religion or a language. Can you talk about that? Absolutely. Uh, now, when people see the... Uh the all-seeing eye and the Masonic imagery uh, and the uh, the compass and the square and all of those symbols, uh, the Masons didn't necessarily invent those symbols, and it's not necessarily a bad thing or a good thing. It's just it, it's describing and hinting to clues about these ancient concepts. The Masons didn't really invent those symbols. They got them from from other places and those symbols just fit with uh, with vortexes converging and and all of these different dynamics uh, to help explain magnetism and, and the way things work on micro and macro scales and and, and in between uh, you want to talk about a group of people that seem to have a lot of clues not just the masons look at the rosicrucians mm -hmm. man those guys have some writings uh their artwork that stuff, there's just so many books on their uh, on occultic sciences. People might think occult is evil or or demonic. Nah, it just means hidden. Occult means hidden. And so these sciences have been kept hidden in these secret societies. Uh, 
And it's about geometry, the importance of geometry. Uh, man, it, it, you cannot uh, emphasize the importance of geometry enough. And you look at these ancient artworks from Leonardo da Vinci uh, and look at the rules from Pythagoras and just all of these symbols and the hieroglyphics, too. And every culture has their own perspective on it. And it's not just Masons. It's not just Illuminati. It's just people who seem to know about these different sciences and they include them in their their artwork way back when so that they didn't get killed if they talked about these things directly because everything was filtered through the church just as it is today uh, I mean look at the at the Big Bang I was invented by a Catholic priest named Georgia uh, Lamatrier and most theories in science today are filtered through the Vatican or filtered to the church so when we're dealing with these Masonic symbols uh, Church will probably demonize those symbols or make them look you know, evil just so people won't take a look. If you have people, uh, if you appeal to their fear instead of appeal to their to their happiness, then you can control people and, and guide them the way you want rather than give them the tools so that they can guide themselves. And let's discuss the word hidden for a second because it has a negative connotation. But I've spoken to two People around the world have spoken to the Dogon, some members of the Dogon tribe, and you have to understand, why are they hidden? Well, at one point, as you well stated, the Vatican, just one example, wanted to sequester that information so that we don't know our own history. I think the biggest conspiracy of all is the true potential of, of human beings. So you have the, the oral tradition that that chooses the people who are going to store this information generation after generation, and only a certain number of people via, uh, what's the word I want to use, um, when, when somebody graduates in the, in the native's uh, culture, how do you call this? Initiation. You can only get that via initiation. But the, the question is why? Why do you think this is hidden? Is it because they want to protect the knowledge? Hmm. Well, rites of passage are usually handed down to those who they deem worthy and they are the ones who already have the information. So, you know, it is important to keep some things hidden so that, uh, so that you learn step by step for yourself. You know, some things you'll ultimately come to the conclusion like, man, that was really easy. Why didn't you just tell me mm -hmm. so that you can learn and, it's like helping a baby uh, chick out of a shell. You can't peel the shell off for it and help it out or else it's going to be weak the rest of its life. Like it's that same in, in regards to spirit and consciousness that you have to learn to do some things for yourself and struggle and learn every step of the way. And that's what it's about. It's not about keeping secrets necessarily for some of these guys. It might be just... If you take the time to learn for yourself and not just be given the information on a silver platter on your terms, now here, feed me this information. Here's my silver spoon. Mm. No, people aren't going to be too hip to that. If you take the time to build things for yourself, experiment and ask questions and listen more than you speak, then people might give you some more consideration. But too many people's cup runneth over. Say the best part of a teacup is the empty, empty part, so you yep. can fill, fill more in it. And if people's uh, cup is already full with information and they have a bias towards some of this information, then they can just dismiss it. And, and I hope that, you know, even the people who dismiss it focus on things that will benefit us all. Absolutely. That's a great thought of having the empty cup. I always say it that whenever. I, I do this inter interviews every week. To me, I'm an empty sponge. It has to be completely empty because that way you're open-minded and you receive new information. But take, for example, you mentioned Walter Russell leaving at home and, and disappearing for, for a prolonged period of time and then coming back perfectly perfectly healthy. I thought of, of this a few days ago. Somebody sent me a uh, something I posted on my blog with the title of... Um, I have it right here. It's about humans 
Are we able, will we ever photosynthesize like plants? Have you, have you studied this? Well, I've certainly entertained those ideas and wondered what it would be like and how much more convenient it would be if we didn't have to eat and, and do all the stuff that we yeah. have to do every day. Uh, but man, I think it is possible. Uh, first, I think it would become in the form of technology and suits that we wear, which would convert our body heat to electricity or uh, be able to feed us through oh, some other means. I, I really don't know how it would work. Maybe through osmosis, through the skin or something. But, yeah, I'm thinking we can absolutely achieve that. Uh, might not – if we, we want to do that naturally, we probably have, would have to have the desire to do so over the course of generations. And then we would probably evolve to uh, manifest our desires by, uh, by our bodies uh, uh, becoming the image and likeness of our desires. So if you have a will to to fly, if your whole society had a will to fly, generation after generation after generation, you're going to eventually achieve it. You might even grow wings or don't know. But you have to stick with that idea. Well, that's I'm so glad that every time you say something, a thought comes to mind because the exact opposite is happening now. Society trains you, trains you not to look at your full potential. If you're told as a kid, no, you'll never be a pilot. For example, I'm just using an example of, of, of me. You know, I wasn't that great at math when I was in school. You know, I was a slow learner, but he came to me later. And I remember the, the guidance counselor telling me, because I said, I want to be a pilot. She laughed at me. She laughed at me, and that immediately shut me down. And I thought, my God, she's telling me that I can't. Well, I love to prove people wrong, and eventually I sent her a, a copy of my, my pilot's license, and I said, don't ever tell a child that they cannot be who they want to be. And this is the problem that I see with society. They tell our children and they try to guide them as opposed to listening to what they want to be and what they want to become. But talking of, of, of re-energizing with electricity, I've always wondered this. Sometimes you go to bed really late at night and the next morning you feel as if you had a battery, the battery would be just blinking, saying that it's low, like a cell phone. And I've heard Bruce that Bruce Lee, when he was live, of course, he would connect himself to electricity and maybe that's why he was how he was have you studied this is there a way that we can recharge our bodies by connecting to electricity since we are an electric body absolutely well that's a great question though uh, yeah actually i heard bruce lee uh you know those muscle stimulators that yes uh, patches on and you know they do sit-ups for you or whatever yep um uh, well, yeah, I understand Bruce Lee was doing that before those muscle stimulators were around, but he would just – he worked his way up to car batteries, like <laughs> full car batteries. This guy would juice himself up. Uh, I'm not sure if uh, if he did that to, like, charge his, his Yang Chi or to charge uh, his muscles in a certain way. I don't know what the reasoning or the uh, – the science behind it. I'm not sure the science behind it, but man, maybe it's just because you can, you can take more. I don't know, but it was doing something for the guy. And he, uh, he wrote a lot about it in his Jeet Kune Do books. And uh, I have a lot of those, uh, those books. I used to read those as a kid and just look through them, but I didn't understand it back then. But now that I'm looking in the context of, uh, of these energy machines in relation to spirituality in relation to, uh, Walter Russell's work and, and Taoism and uh, and the Shaolin. So I love the Shaolin. Um, all these things combined just seem to help explain that. And Bruce Lee was a huge uh, influence in my life, too. Uh, but there are Egyptian hieroglyphics that seem to indicate uh, there's like a guy sitting or he, he is kneeling on a, a stool. It looks like, like a wooden stool or something to keep him, prevent him from being grounded or something. He's holding on to two staffs or two hooks on either side of him, and I take that to mean a positive and negative uh, uh, terminal, and possibly he is literally holding those electric terminals and charging his body or tuning it. Every, every coil or every Tesla coil and every speaker has to be tuned, every instrument, and our body is like an instrument, and our body is like... 
all those things that need like a coil and electric body. So we need to tune it. And I think that the Egyptians and these ancient cultures had methods of uh, tuning an individual's body uh, and doing all sorts of really high tech stuff that uh, that's hidden in plain sight in the form of hieroglyphics, uh, geometry, and uh, you know it doesn't help when you have people. Uh, uh, I like to name names, but people like Zahi Bawas and the history <laughs> misleading a lot of. Uh, individuals um, or just giving their own perspectives rather than giving uh, being an open mind for for other perspectives yeah absolutely and 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 I hope that uh, you know things are not getting any better in Egypt right now but Sahi Hawaj it was not a good legacy for for them he was just keeping the secrets but just one one, one last thing about Bruce Lee you may know that uh, he died of a, of, you know, he took an aspirin because he had a headache and he didn't know he was allergic to aspirin and died at the age of 33. I still don't buy that. I mean, look what happened to his son, Brandon. But that's a, a different story. But you're mentioning something interesting too, acoustic levitation. I saw the other day that some scientists were able to levitate water. I have a video showing how they levitate water. Do you think that the Egyptians and some of the ancient cultures were able to move those massive stones, take Balpeg in Lebanon, for example, with acoustics? Um, it wasn't with acoustic waves that I think. It might have been with, uh, yes, acoustic waves were, uh, uh, how can I put this, man? Acoustic waves might not have been the, the cause for the levitation, but it is one tool, like one step of the whole process. Mm-hmm. When you look at acoustic levitation versus uh, uh, ultrasonic levitation, uh, acoustic levitation needs to be in like a box, in an enclosure. You have to have a speaker on the X, Y, and Z axis, and then uh, that intense sound wave will cause the object in the box to fall to the focal point of the three waves, which means it will rise up or uh, it will be attracted to or it will be pushed to those uh, the focal point, mm -hmm. but dealing with ultrasound, you can have that outside of an enclosure and just have two ultrasonic transducers like uh, 180 degrees apart. That's what I've seen. And you can levitate water drops and you, uh, depending on the strength of the ultrasound, you can levitate strawberries, you can levitate, you know, dead insect bodies and things with high water content, frogs. Uh, so why not water? Because water itself is diamagnetic which means magnets in motion repel water. Magnets in motion repel copper. Copper and water have almost the same diamagnetic quality. So if you can get an electric charge from passing a magnet by copper, then you can get an electric charge by passing a magnet by water, or you can, you can, uh, you can push the water through electrostatics or electromagnetics or... There are different stuff that you can do, and I think that's what the Ark of the Covenant um, might have been used for as one tool, one aspect of it. I think it might have been to power the Giza Pyramid or do something in that regard because there's a, a slot for it in the Giza Pyramid. Uh, and then when Moses was uh, you know, said to take that across the Red Sea, just part the Red Sea, well, if you have... Now, to take, take, take me to the pyramids once again, because I've heard this before, that the Giza was a power plant. Let, let's pretend that the, the Ark of the Covenant was, was that power supply. What effect do you see if you plug it in? Well, uh, it wouldn't necessarily need to be plugged in because it would have probably been so charged with electricity. It would have arced at the top where the two cherubim were, like the two angel wings or I uh, probably would have seen an arc of electricity. That's why I think they call it the Ark of the Covenant. Mm -hmm. uh, now, if you just have it in the uh, that stone chamber, that slot in the Giza Pyramid, I'm thinking that well, – I'm not sure here, but I'm thinking it might resonate or vibrate the stone, the surrounding stone. And because it was so electrically charged or so powerful, it would probably uh, resonate the whole thing like a crystal, crystal circuit. And then the obelisks around the area might have been receivers for that broadcasting system. But there are so many other aspects to the pyramids of what they could be. Or uh, I, 
I don't know. I really don't know. Why, why do you think the pyramids were positioned where they are? Say, for example, Egypt, Mexico, and, and uh, you know, now in Asia. And I've seen some pictures of, of uh, the, uh, the South Pole in Antarctica. Why do you think these pyramids were placed there? For what reason? Well, I'll go back to geometry. If you have a bunch of circles um, making up a grid, like what's called the flower of life, yeah. you'll see where there are points where they all connect like ley lines, yeah. magnetic grid. And I'm thinking that uh, people like Ed Leedskalden or the Egyptians and uh, all these ancient brilliant societies followed these ley lines. They knew about just the simple magnetic laws, and uh, they knew where to find these electric vortexes. And it's, you know, like if you're underwater in a pool, it's hard to... Uh, to make a whirlpool or at least to see see uh, a swirling water while underwater. It's hard to see swirling air while you're in the air. You can see evidence of it by the things around moving in the dust devil, but it's hard to see uh, the medium that you're in cir circulating. So that's what's happening on like the the atomic level, I'm thinking, is that these electric whirlpools are... are uh, uh, They're in a grid. These little electric whirlpools are in a grid, and then you can apply that to the macro, and then they would be in different locations around the world. Now, what happens on the micro happens on the macro and all scales in between. So if there are electric vortices which uh, are circulating or coming out of atoms or magnets, and there are electric vortices in space, people call galaxies, and why wouldn't there be electric vortices in a grid here on Earth on our scale? So it just seems, you know, right and geometric. So that's what I'm thinking is that there are these electric vortexes or some sort of uh, uh, power centers. I don't know what to call them. Do you, you probably have followed the work of Robert Bouval and, and, and Graham Hancock, the Orion mystery, that the pyramids are positioned in, in, in such a perfect way that it matches the Orion constellation. Have you looked into that? Into that? Absolutely. And that is, uh, it seems to be self-evident if you just make the comparisons through side-by-side -side picture comparisons. And then you, uh, you can go into Starry Night, you know, one of these uh, software programs to see where stars will be uh, uh, aligned in different dates. Yep. Uh, you can see that, indeed, they match up with Orion at certain times. So there's something to uh, these ancient structures for sure more so than what mainstream science would be acknowledging. And people like Ed Leedskalnin of Coral Castle and Walter Russell and uh, Pierre Luigi Aguina and all these brilliant unknown guys seem to have connected with those uh, with the same information. Whether they, they researched it themselves or they got it from a foreign source or they saw it on a temple wall, who knows? The point is these people seem to know and it would... Uh, It'd be wise for us to consider their perspectives and just take a look and try to formulate the math around their theories rather than discounting their theories because of current math. That's right. Somebody sent me the other day a picture of the World Trade Center area after the, the towers had dustified, and he put a picture of the pyramids, and it was almost the same location, World Trade Center 1, 2, And seven, building seven. The three of them were exactly in the same position as the three pyramids are. So that's another, you know, some food for thought there. But you mentioned at least Coleman, one of the people that, that fascinates me. Uh, have you been to, to Coral Castle? No, but I would like to plan on doing that before the end of this year. I've been there, love the place, and, you know, the history. Just for the people who, who are listening who may not know what Curl Castle was or who Ed Colin was, I think it would be fascinating to, to just uh, summarize. Oh, my God. How can you summarize a man like Ed Leedskolin? He was from Latvia, an extremely mysterious gentleman that was uh, uh, not very tall and weighed about 100 pounds. And he, over the course of 28 years, built this Coral Castle in Florida. He uh, migrated from from Latvia, and some people think uh, he was like a, uh, a bodyguard to a czar, 
or something, or he was like some secret service, or or his dad was a Freemason or a Rosicrucian. Nobody knows the man's background, except that he came from Latvia and then registered in the United States and then moved to Florida. Uh, and then he he built this castle by himself, uh, working at night, and he he ended up moving his castle to a new location. Yeah. Tell us why he moved the castle to another location. Well, that's uh, debatable. Some people say that uh, he was beat up and he felt violated in that location, so he moved his castle elsewhere. But, you know, that seems like a lot of work to move your whole castle for a few thugs. Uh, so I'm thinking something shifted, like that energy or some vortex shifted to a new location, and he was like, oh, man, well, I got to go to the new location now. Uh, and then he moved it to the look. That's what I think. But almost as the the Tampa airport that had to repaint their one of their their runways when the magnetic north was changing. Saw that. Uh, but and, oh, one thing about Ed Leedskull that's very important to mention uh, are his booklets. This guy wrote multiple booklets. One of them was called Magnetic Current, and. Uh, Every other page of that booklet was left blank so that he invited other people to write their own perspectives and come up with something better. And he just, you know, he put his own perspectives every other page. I don't really know of, you know, one person that has offered a better perspective than what Ed Leedskullen has, has written in that booklet and validated with his suggestions of experiments so that you can try for yourself and see his perspectives. Now, what's so strange is, you know, I haven't seen the guy be wrong in any one of his writings. I may differ from some of his perspectives because I work with Walter Russell's perspectives uh, more so than Lee Scalman. Some of them are contradictory, but yet they're they're related. And they're talking about the same stuff ultimately. But man, this it's just uh, it's so involved. This guy Ed Lee Scalman was so brilliant. Um, If people follow his experiments and just they'll they'll see his perspectives more more so. But what, what's interesting is his perspectives on electrons. Uh, he says that uh, so I have the quote right here. It says millions of people all over the world are being fooled by the non-existing electrons. Uh, and he gives a little story about how electrons came into existence, uh, how J.J. Thompson Um, saw an illusion of observation when he was doing his experiments in a vacuum tube and he gives these explanations of how you can take these soft iron wire and you can take these magnets and you can see the, which way they turn according to the, the way you plug them in and he just really destroys the theory of the electron and asks some really simple questions that, uh, that not many people are, are addressing so This guy, uh, yeah, I, I've never seen this guy be wrong, yet he's coming out with all these these theories that other people might say are, uh, are uh, pseudoscience. But the But biggest question I have about him, Jason, is once we go, we go again back to the hidden knowledge, you know, he pretended to be somebody with not that much education, but as you say, probably because of where he came from. He was, uh, you know, related to the Masons or, or to people with that hermetic knowledge, if you will. Why do you think he took that knowledge to the grave? Do you think like Tesla, he was concerned that the knowledge would land in, in the wrong hands? Um, oh, well, I have my theory on that. Uh, there's a couple reasons why I think so. Uh, one of which is if you're in, if you are in a secret society... Uh, and that society is big enough worldwide, there's really nowhere then you could hide because they'll ultimately find you and kill you if you start giving away secrets. And uh, perhaps he moved to America to just experiment for himself so he could be more open about his stuff. But if he talked too much, he might have been killed. I don't know. Maybe that's why he kept silent. Uh, maybe he wanted for people to to work on their own. In one of his booklets, their uh, animal, vegetable, mineral life, uh, 
think that's what it's called. He he goes just to talk uh, talk about how people should be independent, work for themselves, and those who aren't fit to work for themselves shouldn't live. Like Where do you he, get those books? Uh, uh, I got them from uh, leadskalnan.com, which is Matt Emery's website, or you can go to coralcastlecode.com, which is John DePew's website. Now, talk about John DePew a little bit, because that guy is really brilliant and just as mysterious as Leadskalnan has a lot of information on the guy. And he's, uh, his, his website, Coral Castle Code, has a lot of this information that people need to look at. Pages and pages and pages of stuff. The same with leadskalman.com. You can uh, contact Matt Emery and you can get all of the writings and little booklets. That's what I did. And he sent them all to me and I've been reading through them. Interesting. So he, be, beyond of, of building the castle, he was also into nutrition and, 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 and you know, and, and more, but not new, but uh, more of like what life is about, what life is, and uh, he's he really had sort of a uh, an NWO ish type attitude. If you really read Leeds Gall, he's like those who don't work for themselves aren't really fit to be in society and aren't fit to to life. He was really harsh in his. Uh, Sounds like Kissinger, man. But he he was really harsh in his. Uh, his stances on how people should think for themselves, live for themselves, and not be a slave to other people. And if you can't figure out simple things, then come on. Like, that was his attitude. Well, but, but, but you know, you have to give credit to the guy because he did the castle by himself. So he was a, a proven fact that what he was saying could be done. But, you know, this, this is a location that when you were there, when I was there, there was a group of, of, of dowsers. And this is before I started very touch. This is before I even knew what dowsing meant. But for some reason, they called me into the group and I hung out with them throughout a couple of hours. And then we went inside of, of Leeds Collins quarters where he used to sleep. Mm. And there was a hammock there with chains above the ground because there were rats there at one point and he had to, to, to sleep above ground. But there was a heavy man. Uh, part of the experiment, they sat him on a chair and they told me to join the circle, to, to put my my uh, my fingers together and everybody with their, just pointing to fingers from the bottom of the chair, we were able to raise them with almost hardly any any effort on our parts. And I took, you know, we took pictures of that and I found that to be incredible that he built that, that room in that specific location. Do you think that there's a possibility that the energies in that location may... I don't know if if given certain factors may defy gravity somehow, or uh, rather use gravity to his advantage. Yes, absolutely. Uh, again, I don't really know, but all I know is that this information should be really looked at and studied in a professional way, uh, and it is interesting uh, as anything that I've ever looked at. But I think there's a couple of reasons why he. Uh, uh, he built his castle in the in the place that he did, and it's just one of them that might have been that energy center. Another might have just been peace of mind. Uh, it, it is beautiful out there, uh, but there's just something something else to that man uh, and his writings that that we really need to give some consideration to and experiment with. Not just not just read it, but uh, start building and wrapping some coils and trying to duplicate what he did. That's another thing I try to do is just to uh, duplicate things, try to find out how people originally thought what they did in the position that they were in. Don't just like study Newton's perspectives, sit under an apple tree. That's right. Like, like be in the same position as these people when they came to their epiphanies and might, you might come to different ones. Well, this is almost like boiling it down to the least common denominator. Somebody gives you a recipe for, you know, some kind of a cake or whatever. It's not going to be the same as standing next to the person who, who created that recipe and seeing how many times he does it with what force, you know, the way he puts the salt that's the way you have to do it. You have to put yourself into the person's shoes and walk that way. And ultimately, I think it's just about yeah, being able to put on your own shoes and walk your own way and have priorities in your life uh, of what you really want to pursue. 
it's very difficult for a lot of people to to drop their current way of living because they need to sustain their their families. They have a they have a way of life and it needs to you need to have put food on your plate, you need to have a bed to sleep in and you know provide for your family. So this is why I like to look into all these things because I have the opportunity to do so and I'd like to help help get these ideas and technologies to fruition so that people don't have to work so hard to to do the things they do today. Why do you think that in the 21st century and at least Colin you lived in the late 1800s how is it that in the 21st century somebody has not reverse engineered what he did uh, there are a couple people it seems but they don't really like to uh, put their names out there and they don't like to uh, they're just as mysterious as as Ed Leeds Skullman uh, but there are people who have duplicated quite a bit written quite a bit and uh, people are doing it but it's just not in the mainstream it's individuals who take it upon themselves to to search and try to test and experiment, but it's not going to be commercialized and it's not going to be uh, in the mainstream view. It's just something that people seem to to do for themselves. And uh, man, it's just, it, it either interests you or, or you think it's pseudoscience and you don't pursue it. So each to their own. But uh, for those people who do pursue this kind of stuff, I see the benefit uh, and implications really far down the road and ultimate freedom. So it's not like these things are, uh, aren't being duplicated and aren't being understood. They are, but, uh, it's just not being taught. And that's, uh, that's the hope of, uh, of John DePew is to try to get a school set up so that he can teach. And these other guys can teach, uh, lead scholars perspectives and, and technology and sciences. That's what, you, what you said is so true that, You know, many people say, oh, this is just pseudoscience, the ridicule factor, because this comes directly from academia, oftentimes. But let those people like Jason Verbelli and, and, and Professor John Searle, let them do what they're doing. If you don't believe that they can't, let them do it, but stop getting in the way. And you said something very interesting, that most people cannot pursue the knowledge because of they're too busy paying bills, are too busy trying to, to support a family. We live in a society that instills fear in everything you do. You turn on the TV, there's the fear. You pay your insurance, there's the fear. You pay the alarm in your home, there's the fear. It's fear everywhere. And when you operate out of fear, you, you operate on a survival mode, which does not allow you the, the, the benefit of the liberty to pursue other things. How do you, Jason Verbelli, how are you able to do it? Well, my grandfather uh, passed away and left me uh, an apartment unit, which I had rented out and allowed me to just collect money a month, uh, once a month so that I can focus on all these things without having a nine-to-five job. And then I invested that and then get, get the interest, and it helps to maintain the situation that I'm living now, but not much more than, uh, not much more than that. But that's all I really need. I don't really need to ball out of control. I'm just trying to live and do my things and get enough equipment and wires that, so I can experiment for the next step. So that's all I can do is one step at a time. So because I was given that opportunity to uh, to flourish and do what I love, I took it upon myself to try to make the wise decisions and use my time to work for things that other people would love to do but don't have time for. And it's like uh, it's like a duty, I guess, rather than going out and drinking or doing stuff like that. You can just research and read and try to communicate, talk to people, travel around, have the time of your life and do what you love and, and help benefit other people. So that's what I do. So I just try to uh, use my time to learn things and teach it to others uh, for free, of course. So I don't uh, I really don't like the concept of money. I agree that everybody should be paid for uh, the work that you put in, but uh, I'm just not really fond. I don't have a donation page. I don't have uh, any of that. I just promote the donation pages of other people because I think that they should uh, 
they should be given credence and be given funding so that they can bring their dreams to fruition. And I, uh, I believe the same stuff. So I want to support like-minded people and help vindicate those who uh, have been uh, unjustly swept under the rug. We have, uh, we're, we're approaching the, the intermission, Jason, but you mentioned without words, I, I presume you're mentioning professor John Searle. And I want to know how is it or how was it that you converged with team Searle? Wow. That's a, that's a good question, man. I, uh, said in the beginning of the show that I had been searching for all of these different uh, things, magnets and stuff, and I had linked up with uh, Dr. Greer and seen all those projects there. And then I was on the internet and on YouTube and looking up uh, you know, magnet motors, magnet projects, just seeing uh, what I could discern as real and fake. And I just saw this, uh, this spinning uh, demonstration model of this th four rings with these little magnetic rollers spinning around it. And this thing started up and started spinning really, really, really quickly and just you know, almost silently. I'm looking at the speed of these magnets and just watching the way they move. And something just interested me. Something just clicked. I was like, man, I'm going to read through the comments here. I'm looking through the comments. I'm seeing people ridicule, ridicule, yeah. deny, deny, pseudo skepticism, you know, hate, hate. I'm like, oh, man. I'm liking this already. He <laughs> has a controversial uh, topic. I want to look in their eyes, shake their hand, and see if they're for real mm -hmm. in person. So I'm like, oh, cool. Another opportunity to see see what's up for myself here. Uh, and I just started you know, going back and forth and defending the person's right to post the freaking video because people, were, people were, were hating so much. So I'm looking into it, and I start emailing the people back and forth and John Searle himself just emails me back. Says, you know, thank you for your support and all this. If you have any questions, uh, feel free to ask me questions. I'm like, wow, all these other people that were ridiculing could have just asked the man directly and they didn't. Hmm. So I'm going to take it upon myself to talk to the man directly. So we started communicating back and forth for a couple of years and he was reading my writings and I was reading all of his. And, uh, I was just trying to figure his stuff out. And in 2008, when his DVD came out, I was the first person to get his DVD. And when it came in the mail, uh, I immediately watched it. And it was just dumbfounded. This, the story was, uh, and the, and the imp implications for the technology and this law of squares and you know, all the you know, hundred books that he wrote and just ridiculous amount of material it really impressed me. And, uh, I immediately bought 10 more DVDs because I wanted to give them away to the most influential and smartest people that I knew that could help me understand this, that could give some insight, and I might be able to pass the information along to somebody who can fund it. So in my search and giving all these things uh, to people and talking to them, brought it to the physics department of my, my old school, brought it to... Uh, the philosophy department, the psychology department, brought it to different different people, the solar panel expert, you know, anybody in the energy thing that can that can possibly uh, give it some credence and just take a look. Uh, only two people really watched it for more than 10 minutes. And uh, turns out they weren't so smart and influential after all. They didn't watch it for more than 10 minutes. Are you kidding me? Of them. I brought it to the psych uh, philosophy department, and the guy said, "Yeah, I watched it for ten minutes. Uh, I don't believe it." Like, what do you? Academia. The first ten minutes is talking about the guy's life when he was a kid. That's right. Double kid, like what? Come on, watch the thing before you judge it. And this is the guy who I took a class from, who's all about you know being open-minded and looking at all this stuff. I'm like, man, what a hypocrite! And when we come back, I want you to tell me where. Status-wise, where we are, I know that you have made a lot of progress. I'm Professor John Searle. I want to talk more about it and what this world would look like if this technology finally, once and for all, were to make it to the mainstream. But Jason, how do people become more familiar with your work? Well, they can visit my uh, and subscribe to my Facebook page, which is facebook.com slash Verbelli, V-E-R-B-E-L-L-I. And also my YouTube channel, which has hundreds 
of videos on there, scientific related material, magnet stuff, uh, sciences, all sorts of fun stuff. Uh, that is YouTube uh, user The Real Verbs, V E R B Z. So you can look that up, youtube.com slash The Real Verbs. And there is uh, plenty of links and material to go over, and we can share insight on that because I'm interested in what the listeners have to say. Uh, because I still have a lot to learn on this, and this information is just to get to you guys so that you can help me out with it. We can further it. So lots more to discuss in uh, part two. And you have uh, JasonVerbelli.com that's coming up soon, right? Correct. Uh, yeah, Russ Grease is helping me with that website, and he is with RWG Research. He's the guy working with Stan Myers' water fuel technology. Oh, and this is something we're going to be discussing in segment two as well, discussing water Jason is absolutely an incredible mind, and I look forward to speaking with him in this segment, too. Don't go anywhere. This is Mel Fabregas. I'm here with Jason Verbelli. You're listening to Veritas. Don't go anywhere. Thank you very much for listening to the first segment of this interview. We will continue with segment two with our special guest in the Veritas member section. Just go to our website, veritasradio.com, and click on the subscribe link to listen to the rest. We'll take a short intermission listen to some music, and we'll be right back with segment two in the members section. Enjoy. This is Courtney Brown, and you are listening to Veritas. <laughs> 